Buenas noches. Good evening. I see that Albert is here on his booster chair. <laughs> I had to take shots at you before you take shots at me. <laughs> All right. All right, guys. <clears throat> Let's pray before uh, we get started. My text is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. It's a much larger section, but I decided to focus on these two here. So Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this opportunity, Lord. I just thank you that you're so good to us. Thank you that you are our Father. And thank you, Lord, that you use us, even though we're inadequate and that we choose to sin, Lord, instead of trusting you. And Lord, and this is what we're going to be talking about today, Lord, that we have liberty in you, and so we should not use it as a license to sin. But you've set us free for freedom. We're free to love you, Lord. And so we should do that, Lord. And so I pray, Father, that you would convict everybody here today, Lord. Pray that you would encourage I pray that you would challenge, and I pray that you would uh, shine light in our hearts, Lord, that we may have hope in you continually, for the gospel is not just what God has saved, but it is that which saves us, and that which will save us again, and into the future, Lord. So we thank you so much, and we ask you to bless this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as I said, <clears throat> I'm going to be reading out of Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. That's the primary text, but I do want to read all the way to verse 25, because I'm going to be... Uh, engaging with those. So if you would stand to read the scriptures with me, please. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 16. And it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its sinful, with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You may be seated. <clears throat> the point of our passage is essentially going to be obey God, starve your sinful desires, for you've been set free. So obey God, starve your sinful desires, because you've been set free. See, many of us begin the year with a New Year's resolution. Among the top resolutions we have is to lose weight at least some, not all. But what does it take to lose weight? You gotta eat better, you gotta eat leaner food, you gotta exercise, you gotta do weights. Your caloric intake must be less than that which you are burning. So that you can actually start burning, you gotta lift weights, high intensity training, you gotta plan your week, your meals, you got to exercise, 
But it's not enough. You have to start. That's just the plan. It just begins in your mind, but you got to start it. You're going to have to be consistent. The change is not going to happen overnight. But isn't that why we quit so quickly, though? And it's because we're a 5G people on our phones. You want the fastest service. You want the fastest food service. We got fast food. We got microwave. You got Burger King, which ain't that great anymore, but it was your way, my way, right away. <clears throat> we want immediate results. We want things now, but we're not willing to put the time or the work necessary for the results. And it's not until we start plotting, that is, do a little bit at a time so that gradually it builds, that we start seeing the results. And as a result of that, you'll have new motivation, new desire, new ganas, if you will, to want to do this and to continue to keep doing it. But it's going to take time, it's going to take effort, and it's going to take some sweat. In many ways, it's the same way with your Christian walk and my Christian walk. It's the same way. We don't change in our walk with Christ because we're not willing to put the work in. We've believed the lie that if we pray to God, God will take away our evil desires and our sinful habits. We just ask him, God, take it away. And we expect just magic to happen. But yet, we've been doing this for so many years. We've been accumulating, we've been habituating bad habits, sinful habits, sinful thoughts for so many years. And yet, we ask God, please take it away because I don't want to deal with it anymore. It's really about you. It's not about God because we're asking him, take it away because I'm done with it. But I'm done with it because I feel like a failure. I'm done with it because I, I don't improve. Rather, instead of looking at the sin as an egregious crime against God, it should be not how I feel about it, but how does God feel about it? And because God feels that way about it, then I should therefore feel a certain way about it. And so <clears throat> this happens to us. And then another aspect, too, is the sad part is that we've preached the gospel and we've tried to bring people in. And when I say we, I'm talking about in general evangelicalism when it was seeker-friendly, and so we preached the gospel, we cast the net out widely, but we brought them in, but we never fed them. We didn't disciple. So it was a, a gospel, a good news, without effort. You didn't have to work uh, afterwards. I'm not saying that you have to work to be saved. No, that's not what I'm saying. Christ saves you. He did it all. But you're not saved um, by a faith. You're saved by faith alone, but that faith is not alone. It produces something. There has to be that evidence, and so therefore we don't see that, and we didn't see that. So in the letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul addresses two extreme positions. These two extreme positions go by the names of legalism and antinomianism. Legalism is addressed in the early part of the, the book, and antinomianism is addressed in chapter 5. What is legalism? Well, legalism is basically Jesus plus works. You need Jesus plus the Mosaic Law. You have to have Jesus and do this. If you don't do these, then you're probably not saved. Then you have the other extreme, antinomianism, which basically means lawlessness. That is, denying the usefulness of the law of God for your practice, for your doctrine in life after you've been saved. Because the law has much to offer us in our lives. It is that which points us to Christ. It is that which shows you your face is dirty, but you don't go to the mirror to clean your face. It shows you you're dirty, but it points you somewhere. That's what the law's intent was. It shows you the glory of God, how beautiful he is, how wonderful he is, how righteous he is, how good the law is, but you can't do anything with it. But it leads you to Christ. After you've been saved, the law helps us to live righteously because it shows us that the law is fulfilled according to the Spirit in love. And then it restrains evil. But the danger of what we see here is this, the two extremes of legalism or antinomianism. And essentially, that's what Paul's going to be talking about here slightly, and we're going to apply it towards us. 
because you see towards the end of verse, <coughs> sorry, after chapter 5, he tells them, don't be conceited, don't provoke one another, envy one another, out of love, love one another, right? So don't use your freedom as a license to sin. Treat one another with love and respect because that is the fulfilling of the law, to love your neighbor as yourself. That is derivative of loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so those are the two dangers, those two extremes that we're going to see here. So Paul in chapter 5 is going to be addressing Christian liberty. So the Apostle Paul starts with the gospel. We read him saying in chapter 1, verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? There's only one gospel, so let's not get that wrong. So he's telling them, there's only one gospel. It doesn't matter if an angel comes and tells you something else. It doesn't matter if I change my mind and tell you something else. There's only one gospel. It is what it is. It's been said. It can be changed. So don't think you can do something in addition to believing by faith. Then in chapter 2, you see in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, You know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified that is declared righteous. It is the gospel alone that saves us. One is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Then in chapter 3, Paul pulls no punches, and he keeps just battering and says, You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So here Paul's talking about those who bewitch you, those are the Judaizers. Those are the ones who he wishes would emasculate themselves because they're turning the gospel upside down. They're distorting the gospel. Those are the ones that are bewitching them. See, they didn't have, by they, the Judaizers didn't have their priorities right. They taught, again, Jesus plus the Mosaic law. But Paul is clear. It is Jesus alone. Again, Paul asks them, let me ask you this one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? See, the Holy Spirit does not come by works, but by faith as it was promised to Abraham. In other words, Paul is saying, is it really this where you want to go? You know that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, right? That's from Galatians 3.10. See, to drive his point in their minds, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And so anybody who's under the law must fulfill every aspect of the law, and none of us could. So why would you want to go back to that? It makes no sense. Jesus did that for us, and that's what Paul is telling them. As the refrain in that 1865 hymn goes, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Who washed it white as snow? I didn't wash it white as snow. He washed it white as snow. So Jesus paid it all. So it's all by grace. It's God's doing. So what sinful flesh was unable to do, God did by sending his own son to become one of us except sin. He became what it meant to be human except sin. And as that German Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, took his lead from the Apostle Paul when he wrote this, he said, And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well. What's this article? The gospel. He says, teaching it unto others and beat it into their heads continually. He says, you got to beat it into people's head because they forget time and time again. It has to be beaten into your head, into my head. We forget what the gospel is. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. He saves you. You cannot do it. 
The gospel is what brings you into the family. The gospel is what keeps you into the family. And the gospel will bring you home. It is all by grace alone. So returning to the gospel, at the fundamental level, Paul tells them that no one can be justified by subjecting themselves to the law. And because no one can be justified in such manner, Paul says, therefore, in chapter 5, verse 1, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to your yoke of slavery. That is the old way. Don't go back that way. It is, leads you to bondage. You cannot do it. Listen to what Paul says in 2.21. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So it's preposterous. It doesn't work. It's enslaving. It is an insult to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to think that justification is obtained, obtained via the works of the law in your own doing and not through Christ. You did not receive the Spirit by the works of the law, but by having faith in Christ. Then in chapter 4, we see the plan of God unfolding and the culmination in the coming of the Son to make us sons and to make us heirs. So we are children of the promise. And then finally, we arrive at our chapter, chapter 5, and it's all about the freedom that the Galatians have in Christ. By default, it is also our freedom because we too are in Christ. We possess and we should enjoy this freedom, but rightly, righteously. So Paul begins by telling the Galatians that Christ has set them free. But not just set them free. Set them free for freedom. Because they have been set free for freedom, it is imperative they do not go back to the old ways of doing things. To subject yourself against under the law? Don't do that. And again, like I said before, in this way, we're going to deal with antinomianism. So don't be lawless either. Don't use your Christian liberty as license to sin. So don't be subjected under the law, because you can't do it. Christ did it. And don't use, because you're free from the law in the spirit, don't use that as a license to sin either. So what are those old ways? <clears throat> so, um, excuse me, wrong, wrong line. So returning to having been set free from freedom, have you considered what that means, being set free and having liberty now? It doesn't mean that we're free to do whatever we want. Freedom doesn't work that way. Freedom is not autonomous. It is limited and governed by the boundaries established by God. You're not free to sin. You're free from sin. You see the difference? Sin leads to what? Slavery, to death. Brothers and sisters, we have died to sin. We who have died to sin, and therefore since we've been baptized into Christ's death, crucified with Christ, we have also been raised with Christ to newness of life. Therefore, Stand firm and do not use your freedom as a license to sin. God is not mocked. You may think that you're free, and God may be letting the leash a little bit at a time. But as my professor said, I don't want to go through what Job went. I don't want to get disciplined like that. So you better repent now if you're living a life of sin. If there's anything in your life, repent of it now. Because God is not mocked. You sow what you reap. You and I were purchased with the blood of Christ. We belong to him. We've been set free. We've been set free to love him because before we were not free to love him. We were in bondage to sin. We were at enmity. We were hostile towards God. But now we've been set free, and now we're free to come to him. And so therefore, we're supposed to love him and adore him and obey him with our entire being. And we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. So those who have been justified have been forgiven of their sins. Those who have been justified have, been, have received the promised spirit. Those who have received the promised spirit are children of God by faith. Those who are children of God are led by the spirit. And those who are led by the spirit walk by the spirit. So one more time, the focus and the 
point of our text is obey God. Starve your sinful desires because or for you've been set free. So this brings us to verse 16. And again, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, <coughs> and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So this is not a mere statement. It's a conditional statement. If A, then B. But it's more than just a conditional statement. It's a command. It's an imperative. When Paul says walk by the Spirit, he's saying this. This notion of walking, you have a moral obligation to conduct your life in a manner that is keeping in with the walk of the Spirit. You have a moral obligation. This notion of walking around, the idea carries ethical and moral dimension. It is your duty. You have to walk this way. This is what you've been set free for. Think of, go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. God created us for good works in advance. These are the good works we're supposed to do. We're supposed to love the Lord our God and love our neighbors ourselves. God has prepared these in advance. So walking by the Spirit is not a suggestion. It is a command that you walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling that you've received. This means that our thoughts, our words, our actions must be pleasing to God. This walking is also, the notion of this walking is not just one-time thing. It's a continuous kind of a thing. Like when you work out, how are you going to keep the muscle? How are you going to continue to get faster? How are you going to continue to keep the weight off? By being consistent. You've got to do it continually. In the same way here, the things of the Spirit, we must consistently feed on the Spirit. We must consistently obey God. So there's a continuous walking, a way of life. Herman Ritterboss, theologian, commented once, and he says, he must walk by the Spirit. That is, he must, in fellowship with Christ, let himself be ruled by the Spirit. In other words, walking is synonymous with obedience. So be led and follow the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's important to understand that you can do one thing or the other, but you can't do both. Not at the same time, at least. You can do one or the other, but not both. Either you will submit to God and obey Him, or you will submit and obey sin. And obey sin, becoming a slave, leading to sin and leading to death. Potentially in this life and in the life to come. Now notice what Paul contrasts walking by the Spirit with the desires of the flesh. So what does Paul mean when he says flesh? So flesh can either mean the human body, that which is material, or it can mean the sinful condition, the desires, the choices made in rebellion against God, autonomously, devoid of God's uh, revelation. So Paul's speaking here of the latter. He's not talking about the physical as if, if it were bad, because God declared it to be good. He created it, therefore, right? So we're not Gnostics. We don't think that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. No, God made it good and it was good. So we're supposed to seek to please God. We're not supposed to seek to please our sinful desires. So what are these sinful desires? And that's why we read the entirety of the passage. He says here, they are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are those sinful desires. And I'm sure that we can all see in ourselves that there are some sins there that we they call out our names or that we have committed or have been committing for which we must repent and we must start obeying God and make no more excuses because we're so good at making excuses. We've got to stop making excuses. So Paul has been telling us that these sinful desires lead to death. They will surely lead to death here in due time, 
but also potentially in eternity. Because Paul concludes his, his list with a stern warning. He says this, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he's talking to believers here. But remember, if they're living in such a manner that doesn't display the love of God, that doesn't display the fruit of the Spirit, what is it displaying? That they're not walking according to the Spirit, but according to the flesh. And if they're walking, remember the word continuously walking in such a manner, a characteristic of life, a way of life, then there's a problem there. We should both be characterized by walking according to the Spirit in obedience. But we either obey God or we don't obey God. We obey our sinful desires. So there's that stern warning. Now, you've got to be careful, too, because then we can go to the other extreme and say, well, that means that if you commit a sin like this, then you're no longer going to heaven, too. Well, there's a difference there, right? The idea is there's a pattern of life that is habituated and evident by that method of living that he lists here. You're going to sin occasionally. That's a given. And there are sins that you've habituated, and you may fall back, but you dare not live that way. That shouldn't be characteristic of your life. Because remember, the Apostle John tells us that if we say we have no sin, we're liars too. But at the same time, thank God, we do have an advocate with the Father who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. But we must purify ourselves as he is pure. We must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need to remember that such were some of us, but we were what? Washed. That is who we were. That's why we're not supposed to be characterized. That's who we were. That was our former identity. But now we've been washed. We have the new man. We're in Christ, united to Christ, baptized into his death and resurrection. That is not who we are now. That is the old you, the old me. So the standard by which we ought to live is found in the word of God, in his commandments, not in our flesh, not in our desires. Again, we are not autonomous. If we live according to God's will, then we will not make choices in isolation that go against God's will. So this is essentially what Paul is commanding us to do. Submit to God, and you will not bring to completion the desires of the flesh. Remember what he said initially. <coughs> he says that if you walk according to the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. Now, that's very interesting. It's a guarantee almost, a condition. If you do this, then this will happen. So if you don't gratify the desires of the flesh, that is a good thing. If you walk according to the Spirit, then you're not going to do this. So therefore, it is imperative that we be walking according to the Spirit, that we be obeying God, because in obeying God, you don't give room to go this route. You can't do both at the same time. <clears throat> so think of that, please. So submit to God, and you will not bring to completion. You will not allow these weeds to rise up in your life, and they won't choke you. This is exactly what James tells us, isn't he? Sinful desires give birth to sin, and sin leads to death. God condemned sin in Jesus. And so he died to sin, and we have died to sin, and we're no longer to live in it, and it should not master us. That's the old me. That's the old you. So when you see the old you rising up or the sinful desires rising, say, heck no, I'm not going back. You're dead to me. The sin is dead to me, but that old you is dead to you. You're dead. No te rías. So we are alive in Christ now. Therefore, do not submit yourself again to the yoke of slavery. You see, this goes both work ways, works both ways. To those who wanted to be under the law, don't go back to that. Don't put yourself under slavery. But to us, don't go back to the BC days. Don't go back to the old you, because that's slavery too. Sin leads to slavery and leads to death. So we should not 
Romans 6, 2 tells us, how can we who died to sin still live in it? It makes no sense. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We cannot and should not, but why do we? Because we go back. Like the dog that returns to its vomit, we go back. We can't go back. We shouldn't go back. But we see that as more beautiful than God. That's the problem. So we're told that we're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And if the spirit lives in us, we know that we belong to Christ because the spirit lives in us. And since his spirit lives in us, we are to be led and we are to follow and we are to submit to God. So by doing this, we're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh. And because our minds are set on the spirit, we will have life and peace. Because if you think about it, any time that you've given into temptation, any sin, do you have peace? You don't. You feel like dirt and you should feel like dirt. We shouldn't feel happy about it. And therefore, you're not going to have peace. And that peace should lead you towards repentance. Should lead you to acknowledge that sin and go to Christ. So if God said it, that settles it, not do it. We just got to put our, put our foot to the road and keep running. You got to just do it. We've been empowered by the Spirit. So again, because we're empowered by the Spirit, because the Spirit lives in us, because we're sons of God, we are to continually walk in a manner that is consistent with God's will, what he's told us to do. And I keep saying according to the Spirit. So what does it look like to walk according to the Spirit? Paul tells us in verse 22 what it looks like. He says that the Spirit produces fruits or characteristics inside of us. And those fruits are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now let me just say something here real quick. Some of us have certain personalities and temperaments that potentially lend themselves more towards one of these. And so we look at that person and say, that person's so patient. That person's so gentle. That may be very likely their personality, and there are others that are a little bit more hot-headed, a little bit more stern, uh, assertive, maybe even bothered easy. So there are certain things that we have to consider here, right? But just because that's the case, we don't justify our personality and say we cannot change. Only dead things don't change. But we can change because we're living and we can change because we're empowered by the Spirit. That is a whole process of sanctification. We can't make excuses. We make too many excuses. We rationalize too much. Right? The person who's very gentle might be a people pleaser, so therefore they don't want to get their feet stepped on. The person who's very stern and says, I'm just telling it like it is, but that person's a punk. That person's hard, you know? And then they say, I'll say it like it is. I don't care what you think. Well, they're not being kind or gentle, but they speak the truth. But you see, it's not seasoned with love. So our personalities might be a certain way, and they may look like this, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's it's the spirit because it has to be done for the right reason, and it has to come out. And it is a beautiful thing when a person who's been known to be a certain way shows this fruit because you see that it's a work of God, and it is a daily struggle. It is a daily process that you have to actively be intent and putting the word of God to practice. And as Pastor Steve was saying a while ago, if the word of God tells us and corrects us and exhorts us, then it behooves us to put it to practice. No matter what, 
Why don't we do it? Because we're lazy. Why don't we do it? Because we don't want to. We make too many excuses. There's no if, and or buts about it. That's what it is. That's all it is. So all of these characteristics that I just mentioned, what are they? Well, they're the fruit of the Spirit. That is how the law is fulfilled through love by the Spirit. These are essentially the summary of the commandments, the law. So let's think about this. Do you exhibit love in your life? What does that even look like? Do you love only those who love you? Do you find it difficult to love your brother, your sister, who you don't find lovely? Do you stay quiet when you should speak up because you're too afraid that you're not going to be liked? Are you at peace in your life? Are you always stressed out? Why are you stressed out? Are you the kind who interacts with believers and unbelievers? Are you kind with them? Are you gentle in your dealings with your children, with your husband, with your wife, with your brothers, sisters, family members? Are you rough around the edges? When someone says something false about you, cuts you off on the road, how do you respond? Do you remain calm? Do you lose control? What happens inside of you? How do you justify it? See, these characteristics are first the work of God, but then we also have to do some work. It doesn't just happen overnight. We may pray and say, God, help me be kind, gentle, and self-control. And then he gives you the opportunity to do it, and you're like, ah, and you don't want to do it, right? Because he gave you the opportunity. Why me? You think you're Job, but you're not really Job. But we keep responding in the same way, and we keep doing the same things. So when you're praying, make sure you're careful what you pray for, and be aware that God is giving you opportunities to practice these things through the Spirit. We tend to be like that man who wanted to have a job, and... He wouldn't fill an application. He wouldn't send in a resume or go to the interview. He just wanted somebody to call him and say, hey, I'm going to give you a job. That's what we want. We pray to God, do this for me, but we're not willing to do anything. Take at least a few steps to do something. It takes works in our lives. We must be vigilant. We must strategize. We must set apart Christ in our hearts so that we can love him fully. It is very practical. It is not just spiritual. It's spiritual, but there's very much practicality to it. Because why? We're psychosomatic. We're soul spirit. Uh, body, soul, 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 spirit, body. There's, there's a physical dimension to us, so we have to be practical in this. Why do you think the Apostle Paul keeps telling us, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling? God started it. God gave it to you. Now walk according to the Spirit. But someone might say, what's well, easier said than done? Or that not letting, that's not letting the Spirit work. I want the Spirit to work. I don't want to you know, do things in the flesh. I don't want to do things in the flesh. You know what? I, I, I cannot stand that. You know, I took this out of my, my sermon, but I'm going to say it right now. So <clears throat> I had a professor in, in, in seminary, not the recent one, the previous one. And one day I asked him, hey, what is this talk about doing things in the spirit and not in the flesh? I really didn't know what in the world he was talking about. And, and he was very kind of giving me answers, but kind of keeping me in the dark. And he says, well, you know, you can't do things in the flesh. At the end of it, I was more confused. And I'm thinking, well... I guess I just have to wait for God to give me the desire to do it, you know, because, I mean, if I'm doing something for the wrong reason, it doesn't matter, you know. I mean, I'm doing it in the flesh, and how do I know if I'm doing it in the flesh or in the spirit? I mean, I didn't know what it meant back then. But you see, that, that's wrongful thinking to say, oh, I mean, I, I want to let the spirit work in my life. I don't want to force things, because what if I'm not letting the spirit work? I mean, that's the biggest baloney, and thinly sliced baloney is still baloney. You know, it doesn't matter if it's thinly sliced or thick. It's still baloney. We just got to do it, you know, trust God. And what it means here to walk in the Spirit is to obey God and what is revealed to us because His Word teaches us, rebukes us, corrects us. 
So those are just defeater beliefs. That's an automatic loss. That's why Bruce Lee once said, defeat is a state of mind. Defeat is a state of mind. There's a lot of truth in what he's saying. He was a pagan, but he's, but he's saying the truth. You lose the battle where first? In your mind. You lose the battle first in your mind. Before you get into the ring, you're done. If you've lost the battle, if you're afraid, if you haven't prepared mentally, if you're not psyched out for that fight, you've lost. Now, you might as well not even go into the ring because you're going to get hammered because you're going to freeze. So defeat is a state of mind. So don't have defeated beliefs like this because you lose before you even get started. If you focus on the wrong thing and believe the wrong thing, you might as well not do it. Right? So don't believe the lies of the devil. Don't believe the lies that you make up and don't believe the lies that you want to believe because you don't want to work at it. So let me ask you, <clears throat> why are you still giving in to the same sin year after year, month after month, week after week, day after day? It's been 50 years, 20 years, three years. I can't stop sinning. I can't stop doing this one thing. I struggle so much with this sin. Why can't I stop? Well, maybe because you're not walking according to the Spirit. Maybe because we're being lazy. Maybe because you keep doing the same thing and you keep putting yourself in a position where you're going to fall. And you keep saying, maybe this time it won't happen. I just want to take a look. I just want to hear. I just want to say this. I just want to say that. I'm going to go drive through here. All those things are going to be messing with you. So are you still believing what you're not supposed to be believing? Are you still seeing what you're not supposed to be seeing? Are you still thinking about what you're not supposed to be thinking about? Are you still listening to what you're not supposed to be listening to? Are you still going where you're not supposed to be going? Are you still gossiping about your Christian brother and sister? Ladies, do you disrespect your husbands because you think he is a problem or because you feel unloved? Husbands, do you withhold love from your wives and treat them coldly because you think that she's the problem because she disrespected you, so how dare you disrespect me? I'm not going to love you. First, Take ownership for yourself and do what God has called you to do. God's going to deal with them for living in their pagan lifestyle. Just because they live like a pagan doesn't mean you got to live like a pagan. You've been set free. So maybe you're believing the lies. Maybe you're being lazy, like I said. Maybe, therefore, you're not walking according to the Spirit, but according to the flesh. So who's to blame? Not God. We are. See, it's not that we don't know what to do. It's that we don't want to put in the work to do it. Right? Think about it. We've been set free. We have the spirit. We have the moral compass. Why don't we do it? We make excuses. It's too hard. At the end of the day, if we find ourselves giving into our sins, you and I do what? We love our sins more than we love God. And I'm not trying to make my voice like that. It's just that my voice is jacked up. <laughs> so we love our sin more than we love God. There is no other explanation. Does anybody force you to sin? No. Why do you sin? Why do you do anything? Because you want to do it. Right? Which desire is going to be strongest? The one that you want. Let's say you have a child. And you tell this child, Hey, eat this broccoli. And they hate broccoli. Eat the broccoli. I'm not going to eat the broccoli. Eat the broccoli. I'm not eating that broccoli. I don't care what you say. Here's some ice cream. Eat the ice cream. I love ice cream. Which desire takes over? The strongest desire. In the same way, why does sin have a stronger desire than your love for God? That's something that we need to consider. Right? All of us have to be very much aware of this and analyze ourselves. You see, nothing's going to change until you take, you take a stand and stand firm and decide that it stops here. What is it going to take for us to make change in our life? 
You want God to discipline you? You want God to take you out now? Listen to what the Puritan Thomas Watson said. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. I'll say it again. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. He's right. Why isn't Jesus sweeter to you? What sin do you find sweeter than Jesus? It's a trap. Stop it. You weren't made for this. You were made for Jesus. You were bought by Jesus. You belong to him in life and in death. So let us live a life of gratitude. We're not grateful people. Faithful and obedient. We need to be grateful. We need to be faithful. We need to be obedient. You need to realize who you are. Who are you now? You were washed. Who are you now? You're no longer who you once were. Once you realize who you are, then the rest will follow. Doing the rest or doing results from being. Listen to that again. Doing is the result of being. Being precedes doing. Who you are will determine what you do. So we, as children of God, that is who we are now. So if that's who we are, that determines what we should do. So the question is, if that's my new status, am I living in like manner? Am I living how I'm supposed to based on who I am? If my identity and my walk don't match, there's a problem here, right? So who I am determines what I will do. And what I do is evidence of what I am. But again, we need to realize who we are and we need to realize who God is. So having come to terms with who we are, let us put our eyes on Jesus. Stop making excuses and decide that you're going to follow and obey him alone. Martin Luther said this, Take the spirit for your guide and resist the flesh. That is the most you shall ever be able to do. Obey the spirit and fight against the flesh. So this brings us to our next point. Let us start starving, mortifying, that is killing the sinful desires of the flesh. So in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So the Apostle Paul here describes a war that is happening within us. There are two desires, the desire of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. These desires are opposed to one another. They wage war upon one another. It's important to know, though, that while we have died to sin, we've been freed for the eternal consequences of sin, the requirements of the law because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we nevertheless still deal with the effects of our sinful nature. This is why Jesus could say that it is out of the heart that evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and all types of sin arise from and come from because it comes from the remnant of the flesh. We're still dealing with this on this side of eternity. That's why you have to walk according to the Spirit because if you don't, you'll walk according to the flesh. You have to suppress those. You have to fight those. You have to kill those. We know all of this is true, right? By experience, we know it's true. So if you examine your thoughts when you're alone, when it's quiet, when these things rise to the, to the top, what comes to the top? What do you hear? What do you see? What images from the past? What things you hear? The pains, the struggles, the hang-ups you have, the things that you hate, the things that make you angry. Like all of these things, when you're quiet and you see, make sure that you bring these to Christ. If these are sinful, bring them to Christ and immediately put a stop to them. Even the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 7, 15 through 18, right? That he does the things that he doesn't want to do and he doesn't do the things that he wants to do. He finds this war within him. So I want you to notice the last portion of that statement. Paul said, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Now, normally we think about this from the negative side, right? Say, yeah, you know, 
I really want to do the good stuff, but I just don't do it. So we think higher of ourselves. But that's a good thing in a sense because we hope there's a good evidence that you want to do the right thing, right? That's a good thing. I'd be more worried if we didn't want to do the right thing. Hopefully we're wanting to do the right thing for the right reason. So that last part is that negative side is that we look at, you know, oh man, I, I, I sinned again and I disobeyed. Why can't I just do what I want to do? But if you think about it, you kind of are doing what you want to do. Right? Because nobody forced you to sin. You just did it because you wanted to do it. So your mind, is on, your mind is on the flesh, and therefore you'll do what? What you've set out to do. The mind set on the flesh leads to death. It is at enmity with God. It cannot please God. That is true for the non-believer. It's true for the believer. If you as a believer set your mind on the flesh, you cannot please God. There's no way you can please God. Not at that moment. Because you're giving in to the flesh, the sinful desires. But the opposite is likewise true, though. If you think about it, what am I referring to? The spirit is also against the flesh, fighting it to keep you from doing the sinful things that you want to do when these things rise up and if you focus on them. So if you're walking in obedience, guess what? The spirit is keeping you from the deeds of the flesh. But if your mind is on the flesh, then that'll keep you from doing the things that you want to do that are in the spirit. It's a guarantee way either way. If you put your mind on the flesh you'll go that route. If you put the mind in the spirit, you'll go this route. That's what Paul told us already, right? So many have heard the man who had two fighting dogs. He could control the outcome of, a, of the dog fight by feeding one dog and starving the other dog. So when he fed the brown dog, it would win the battle. And when he would feed the bat, black dog, it would win the fight. And so on. This is the same thing that happens to us. All of us, we're feeding either our flesh or we're feeding on the things of the spirit or we're feeding the spirit. Whichever gets fed wins. That's why I said the strongest desire wins. What is it that you're putting your, your desires, what is it that you're feeding? But all of us who belong to God and who have been born of the Spirit and who have the Spirit living in us, the answer is obvious, isn't it? Because we want to please God and because we want to live according to the will of God, we must set our minds on the things above where Christ is seated. We must set our minds on the Spirit so that we can please God. Now, because there is a war, we need to be aware of it. We need to... Decide beforehand what we're going to do. Now, this is very important. I was talking to a buddy of mine not too long ago, and he told me, the problem is that we're, again, too lazy, and we just give in. You and I already know what our weakness is. So if you go and do something that you know is going to make you fall, you're stupid. You did it on purpose. You know what you were doing, Right? We didn't plan for it. So when you wake up, you know that this is going to be a potential issue. You know that this is going to bother you. You know that this kind of thing makes you sin. You know that you don't want to take another drink. You know you don't want to watch pornography. You know you don't want to get angry. You know you don't want to go steal. You know you don't want to talk gossip. So plan for the day. You already know when you're going to be weakest, right? When you're hungry, when you're alone, anonymous, lonely, or tired. These are some of the physical things that are going to happen. Those are the times that you're going to be most tempted. So then avoid those instances, avoid those places, avoid those shows, avoid that thing which is going to make you fall. So plan ahead. You already know that there's a big billboard there that shows something you shouldn't be seeing. Go the other route if you can't stop looking that way. You don't want to go gamble? Don't go that way because you're going to go gamble. So plan ahead of time. Because if you don't, you're just basically coming to the fight and you're already fighting. 
you want to be winning the battle ahead of time. You want to be, you remember what, what I said a while ago? The fight is one in the mind. So win the fight ahead of time. Don't wait until you're in front of the temptation to fight. It's too late then, unless you have the resolve to do it. But don't wait till then. Be wise. Right? As Coach uh, John Wooden once said, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And how many times do we fail to prepare? And therefore, by default, we're failing. So we need to decide beforehand what we're going to do, what we're going to do, where we're going to go, what we're going to hear, what we're going to say. So what are you going to do? What are you going to focus on? So we therefore need to, as John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I repeat, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Now, Owen has in mind the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 8, 12 through 13, when he says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So you see what he gives you, he tells you there? The killing of the flesh cannot be done by yourself. You cannot mortify the flesh by yourself. It is through the Spirit and by the Spirit, but it also is a synergistic act. It is the Spirit the one who does it, but you have to also do something alongside with him, right? It is by the spirit that you put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. So how can we begin to starve sin? Better yet, how can we not only starve sin, but kill sin? John Owen describes this process of mortification in three steps. He says, first, weaken it. Second, beat it. Third, you will succeed it. You will succeed over it. Once you beat it, you weaken it, you beat it, and you succeed it. How are you weakening it? By starving it. How are you beating it? By clobbering it anytime it comes at you. And so I want to give you a few practical directives from Scripture and then some from John Owen. So first, pray. When you know you're going to be confronting this, the best thing we could do is always pray. First, pray, right? As if that's the only thing you could do, right? That's what uh, um, Hezekiah did when Sennacherib was coming. He prayed first, and then what did he do afterwards? He started building the wall. Pray first. So Jesus told us to be awake, to be alert, to be vigilant. But he told us to pray, right? Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So pray. Be, in, be at one with your maker. Be in his presence. Second, second, memorize scripture. Why? Because by memorizing scripture, the Holy Spirit will bring it to your remembrance in due time. He will bring those words to you. And it is by the word of God that Jesus rebuked Satan time and time again. That's how Jesus responded, right? He said, the word of God said, the word of God said, the word of God said. So memorize scripture because it is the way that Jesus dealt with it and it is a good way for us to deal with temptation. Third, stop believing lies. We all have lies that we've believed and so we need to evaluate our defeated beliefs with the word of God. There are things that you and I believe that are not biblical. They may not be unbiblical, but they may conflict with the doctrines that we know because it might be secular or worldly and so therefore they're causing you an issue and they're leading you down the wrong path. So stop believing those lies. Fourth, take sin seriously. It's a grave matter. Take sin seriously. The Bible says that sin will kill you. Owen said that if we diagnose the severity of our sin, how strong its pull is on you, how long you've been doing it, and how long you've been giving into it so easily. So diagnose the severity of sin. If you know if it's really bad, then you've got to take extra precautions. You've got to work out harder. You've got to do more things. Right? So stop making excuses. Stop rationalizing it. Call it what it is. Listen to what John Owen said. Bring your lust to the gospel, not for relief so that you feel better. He says, not for relief, but for further conviction of its guilt. Don't bring your lust to him. Oh, poor baby. No, 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 no. Man up. 
woman up. He says, bring it so that you can see it for what it is, so that you can be further made more guilty of that sin. Look on him whom you've pierced and be bitter. Say to your soul, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Have I obtained a new view of God's fatherly countenance and I might behold his face only to provoke him to his face? Can you imagine that God allows you to approach him just for you to be able to spit on his face with your sin? So he's saying, take a good assessment of your sin. Know what it is. If, if you and I don't see our sin for what it is, then we're not going to be hypervigilant enough to identify it and kill it as soon as it peeks its head. So fifth, be convinced of your guilt. Not only go to him to convict you of your sin, be convinced of your guilt. You have to know that you're guilty. If you don't see your sin for what it is, an egregious sin against God, something hateful, something evil, but also you feel guilty about it and you feel contrition about it, you're broken about it, it's not going to do you any good. You and I are guilty of it if we want to sin and give in to sin. Don't think so highly of yourself that you don't think it's such a bad sin, that your sins are not as bad as a person who drinks, the person who gets uh, drugged out, the person who's on pornography. Your pride, your anger, everything else, those little sins that are called respectable sins are just as bad as well. Your pride, all of that stuff, it's evil, so get rid of it. So don't compare your little sins to the bigger sins of your wife, your husband, your kids, or anybody else. Acknowledge your own sins. Repent of them. Bring them to the feet of Jesus. Ask God to forgive you, and he will forgive you. Six, desire to be free and avoid any occasion that can bring about and incite this sin. You must know yourself. Know when you are most vulnerable. We talked about this not too long ago. What your weakness is, and avoid it at any cost. And everything that you know, uh, because if not, you'll fall. Why do you think Jesus was so ruthless? He says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Obviously, you're not going to gouge it out because you can still sin, right? Cut off your hand. The idea was extract yourself. Be ruthless of your pursuit for holiness and purification. Do not allow yourself. Don't make it easy. Don't make excuses. Be tough. Be hard on yourself because this is very important. So Jesus would say, if you have to take your eye off, then take it off. But even if you took off your physical eye, you can still see with the eye of the mind, so you're, you're, now you can't see. Now you're going to be crashing into poles more. So, know your weakness. Avoid it. Seventh, as soon as you identify sin creeping its head, address it immediately. Don't start thinking about it. Don't start fantasizing about it. Don't start saying, eh, I won't, I won't. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the brakes on it. It's too late then. As soon as it comes up, whack it. You know, like that game at Chuck E. Cheese, sock em, bock em. As soon as it wipes his head, smack him in the head. That's what you got to do. As soon as, it, you know, as soon as it goes, bam, whack him. That's what you got to do to your sin. Owen says you must be ruthless. You, you got to go after it. You got to kill it. Because if you don't, and if you allow it to stay there, if you, allow it to fan, if you fantasize, if you start thinking about whatever it is, guys or girls, you better be careful. Granted, guys' minds and girls' minds think differently, but yet we still have sinful desires, and so we have to be careful what comes into our minds. So don't wait till it's too late. Too many Christians, uh, including myself, we say, oh, I'm struggling with sin. And so many well-meaning brothers and sisters say, oh, well, at least you're struggling with it and not giving in. You know that struggling with it is a problem? Because it's choking you and you're grappling with it. You don't want to be grappling with it. You want to snipe. You want to be a sniper and kill it as it comes out of it, pokes its head up. Struggling with it is a problem. Because you waited too long. You shouldn't be struggling with it. That's why you think ahead of time. You're ready for it ahead of time. 
you know what you're going to do ahead of time, and you do it when it happens, and you don't make excuses. So as soon as it puts a head up, whack it with a stick, shoot it. That's what you got to do. That's what Owen's saying. I'm, 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 this is a Carlos version. So you don't want to be struggling with it. You want to kill it. As soon as it pops its head up, hit it immediately. Owen said this, do you find your corruption to begin to entangle your thoughts? Rise up with all your strength against it, with no less indignation, that is anger, than if it had fully accomplished what it aims at. See, get angry with it, not just after you've sinned, because after you've sinned, it's too late. You know, like, oh, poor me. Oh, I did it again. Well, be as angry when you see it so that you can avoid it and kill it right away. Don't, don't, don't honk your horn after you've already crashed. Honk your horn before you crash. Okay? Some of you guys have done that, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and lastly, he says, as soon as you see it, call it sin, be angry with it, hate it, starve it, and kill it, or it will kill you. So lastly, overwhelm it. So all that I've been saying sounds like techniques that we can do and we can uh, <clears throat> kill sin. But again, remember, it's not just you doing this by yourself. We need the power of God. We need the Spirit. We, that's what Paul tells us. It's according to the Spirit. The Spirit empowers you. But remember, you do have to take active measures. You have to go when you see weeds coming out in the garden. You go and take out the weeds. You don't wait till they're big, right? It's too, long, too late then. I mean, it's more work. You got to take them out as soon as they come out. Same thing with this sin. Hit it as soon as it comes out. You got to overwhelm it. How do you overwhelm it? We need the power of God. Owen again says this. Set faith at work on Christ for killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this, and you will die a conqueror. So yes, you will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. Listen, that's a very big, bold claim. But there's nothing different than what Paul already didn't say. See, too many times we believe the lies. Paul already said this, walk by the Spirit, and what? And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul already told us this. If you do this, you're going to kill it. But you have to continuously be living this way. Now, we're not going to be free from sin. I'm not talking about entire sanctification. That's not what I'm saying. Because anytime that God helps you conquer a sin, guess what? Another one sprouts out. Right? And thank God that God doesn't show us all our sins because you'd be jacked up and I'd be jacked up, you know? So be fighting it, be killing it. And I, and I do love what he says. You know, with good providence, live to see your lust dead at your feet. Desire that. Don't see yourself as poor me. I'm going to be 55. I'm going to be 105 in my deathbed saying, oh, Lord, I couldn't do it. Forget that. We're not supposed to be uh, weak, weak sauce, as Brian likes to say, weak sauce. You want to be strong sauce, habanero sauce, you know. You want to take it out. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is not only that which sheds light on our need for salvation. It is the power of God to save us and to bring us along every step of the way to glory. So Herman Ritterboss, that theologian I mentioned earlier, helpfully describes the synergistic work, that is, the work of the Spirit and humans together. He says, the principle of the Spirit does not make human effort unnecessary, but arouses it and equips it to put all its force into the service of the Spirit. You see, again, the principle of the Spirit does not make human effort unnecessary. Just because the Spirit is doing it doesn't mean that you don't have to do anything. No, the Spirit himself arouses and equips it and puts it all its forces into the service of the Spirit. He works in and moves through you so that you can do the work that God has prepared you to do. So God is working in us to move us and to desire and to give us new desires so that we can keep moving and doing what we're supposed to be doing. Having discussed how to starve and kill sin, this brings us to our next point. 
And it is that we've been set free. And in Galatians 5.18, Paul tells us, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Again, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. So being led by the Spirit presupposes two things. One, it implies that we are following the leading of the Holy Spirit. And two, it means that we are sons of God. That's what we read in Romans 8.14. And what are the sons of God supposed to do? They're supposed to walk according to the Spirit. They're supposed to obey their Heavenly Father. Given that we are sons and daughters, we are not under law, but under grace. Remember that it is because of Jesus Christ that we are forgiven and no longer condemned. It is because of Jesus Christ that the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. And it is because of Jesus Christ that we are sons of God. And it is because of Jesus Christ that we are heirs with God and of God. Therefore, as Paul told us in Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. See, we are free to live for God now. So let us not use that freedom as a license to sin. We have died with Christ and have been set free from sin. We've been set free to glorify our God, to live holy lives, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's why Paul tells them, do not devour one another, but love one another. So we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Having this thought process then frees us to live for God. And as a result, we will not let sin reign in our bodies. We will be killing sin with the power of the Holy Spirit. We will be living obediently. Sin will not have dominion over us because we are under grace. We are not under law. We are not supposed to submit again to the yoke of slavery. We've been set free. We have died to sin, and therefore we shall not live in sin. We don't have to. We are in Christ. We're no longer condemned. And therefore, we are supposed to walk according to the Spirit. Remember, those who walk according to the Spirit will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature, but those who walk according to the Spirit are sons of God. And the sons of God will please their Father because anybody in the Spirit belongs to God and therefore they can please the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 